I am reminded of the many challenges that we as individuals, as families, as a church, and as a nation underwent in 2020. And the truth of the matter is almost all of them are still with us here in 2021. Successfully navigating such uncertain times requires deep faith and certainty in God. But far too often we as individuals and even churches kind of get caught up and distracted by a lot of things. Whether it be our being sucked in to the media and politicians' heightened partisan politics or our own agendas. Whether it be the seduction of power and wealth or the false sense of security that we place in them. Whether it be in our seeking to bury our heads in the sands of pleasure, entertainment, or addiction in order to escape everything stressing us out in this life. Or whether it be giving in to our depression, despair, and panic altogether. As Christians, we can't afford to get caught up in these and other distractions if we hope to thrive and serve as faithful witnesses in this world. That's why today I wish to share with you five principles for great leaders. The acronym is G-R-E-A-T, great leaders. Five principles for great leaders and everybody else. <laughs> right in there with you. In doing so, I will be setting us up for the upcoming sermon series that will begin next week where we'll be looking at the prophet Elijah. Its simple title is Under Pressure. How many of us feel like we're under pressure? pressure today i've been jamming to that song this week by the way with that coming up in mind but as we get ready we're going to have a brief historical overview today uh, to see what events and what happened generationally generation after generation that led up to when the prophet elijah appeared on the scene and to see what we might be able to glean from a few observations of that story. From 971 to 931 B.C., Solomon ruled as Israel's king, succeeding his father, David, who was the first king of Israel. As king, Solomon had a lot of good points. Those of us familiar with the scriptures know that God granted him a rich and deep wisdom. We also know that it was under his leadership that the first magnificent temple for God was built. But even so, his immorality led him to having many wives and concubines, and their influence led to him and lured him into embracing other gods, their foreign gods, their false gods. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9 and following, we read, The Lord became angry with Solomon because of his heart, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my commandment and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Later on, we discover that Solomon had apparently been working the people pretty hard when it came to all his building projects. An official named Jeroboam had demonstrated a great worth ethic, and Solomon had appointed him as being over all of that labor force. But high taxes and heavy labor are not a recipe for boosting the morale of the supervisors, much less all the workers under their supervision. About that time, a prophet named Ahijah came to Jeroboam and informed him that God would tear most of the kingdom out of Solomon's lineage hands because of Solomon's disobedience. Ten tribes would be ruled by Jeroboam, he was told, while Solomon's lineage would rule one. Apparently, Jeroboam rebelled due to Solomon's harsh treatment of the workers, it seems. So Solomon sought to kill him, and Jeroboam got out of town and ran to Egypt. When King Solomon died, however, his son Rehoboam assumed the throne. And after hearing of this news of Solomon's death, Jeroboam returned along with the whole assembly and approached the new king about lightening up on the taxation and the heavy workload that had been on them. Rehoboam wanted to take some time to think about it, so he sent him away for a few days, and he consulted with his father's advisors, who encouraged him to grant them their request and lighten their load, informing him that the people would remain loyal servants of his if he did so. But Rehoboam didn't want to hear any of that. That's not what his itching ears were longing to hear. So he decided to go and meet up with some of the guys his age and ask them what they should do, he should do. And they essentially told him that he needed to put the people in their place, put the hammer down, and assert his authority and rule. When Jeroboam and the people returned, Rehoboam told them that his father had made their yoke heavy, but that he would make their yoke even heavier. How do you think the popularity poll would have polled about then? <laughs> Needless to say, he fell out of favor with Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes, and they rejected his leadership. As God had promised years earlier, the country was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, ruled by Jeroboam, and the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, ruled by Rehoboam. I mention these examples to lead us to our first two principles that I think we can glean from these stories so far. Number one, God takes our leadership seriously. God takes our leadership seriously. And just because you don't have leader in front of your name does not mean that you're not a leader. Every one of us influences others. And just like the talents in the parable, God wants us to be faithful stewards of our influence. Number two, rebellion against God has consequences. 
Rebellion against God has consequences. In the cases of the kings that we have seen so far, the unwise actions and disobedient hearts didn't escape the eyes of God. And their rebellion cost not only them, but their families and future generations as well. When we continue to operate outside of God's will, it inevitably moves us outside of God's blessing and protection. Church leaders who open themselves up to the false gods and teachings of other religions and embrace the immoral ways of this world just as King Solomon did frequently find their kingdoms torn apart, churches and denominations ripped apart. Parents who lay a heavy yoke upon their children, as King Rehoboam attempted to do upon the people of Israel, often later on find themselves being rejected by their their children, just as Rehoboam was rejected by his people. Church leaders who have no accountability and fall into the subtle traps of Satan for selfish ambition, greed, or immorality often cause their families and those around them to suffer, sometimes quietly behind the scenes. But when their rebellion is exposed, their reputations and lives not only affect them and their families, but their churches and their ministries as well. Getting back to our story, after building up a couple of areas during his rule, Jeroboam feared that the people would return to King Rehoboam. Why? Because in order to worship God, the the Lord, they would have to go to Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled by Rehoboam. So out of his insecurity, he thought, I can't have them traveling down there. I might lose their loyalty. So what he chose to do was to erect some false gods for the people himself and he set up these worship altars with two golden calves one at each altar one in Bethel and the other at Dan at some point during his more than 20 year reign a man of God from Judah came and prophesied against these idolatrous altars sometime after that Jeroboam sent his wife in disguise to the prophet Ahijah who informed her of the word of the Lord that had been given to her against her husband, Jeroboam. And in chapter 14, we read this. He says, God said, I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. 
Not what they wanted to hear. But after Jeroboam died, his son Nadab assumed a throne, but only reigned for two brief years. In chapter 15 of Kings, we read what his fate was. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his son, which he had caused Israel to commit. Did you hear that? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, excuse me, not son, sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Basha, son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town where Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Basha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Now, it's not that God condoned his actions, but nonetheless, God in his sovereignty was overseeing everything, even though that was an immoral act. Basha ruled for 24 years. But then we read about him later on in that same chapter. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, against Basha. I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel, but you walked in the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to provoke me to anger by their sins. Do you notice... God makes it a point to highlight how both Nadab and Basha's sin rubbed off on their people. As parents, our children watch us. And what we do rubs off on them. When they walked in the ways of Jeroboam, their leadership and example caused the rest of Israel to sin, which in turn provoked God's anger, which leads to the third principle. Examples set affect the entire group. Examples set affect the entire group. For better or worse, our Christian walk affects those around us, especially those under our authority or influence. The example set by parents and grandparents affects their children and grandchildren, and the examples of brothers and sisters influence their siblings. The example set by supervisors at work either encourages or discourages the job performances and teamwork of their subordinates. The example of the captain on the team impacts the entire team, and the example of each teammate influences their other colleagues. The example set by a principal affects his or her faculty. The example set by teachers 
impacts their students. The examples set by students influences their fellow classmates. Especially when we call ourselves Christians. The example set by church leaders sets the pace for the entire church body and affects the ministry for better or for worse, for God's blessing or God's curse. After King Basha died, his son Elah assumed the throne. His rule lasted a mere two years before we read in verse 9 of chapter 16. Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half of his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Terza at the time, getting drunk in the home of Ezra, the man in charge of the palace at Terza. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Basha in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Basha through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins Basha and his son Eli had committed and had caused Israel to commit so that they provoked the Lord the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Now, if you thought Elah's brief two-year reign was pretty short, consider Zimri's, who was only seven days. <laughs> when the Israelites at the camp heard about him murdering the king, they appointed Omri, the commander of their army king, and they laid siege to the city of Terza, where Zimri was. And we read there, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died. Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions, half supported by Tibni, son of Genneth, from for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ganoth, and Tibni died, and Omri became king. Omri ruled for a total of 11 years, almost half of which was engulfed in civil war. Then we read later on. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omni's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. Now I want to pause here because you'll notice something was said and we've, I haven't been reading it all the time. But notice all the things that he did and achieved were written in this other book. These guys did have some good points about them. 
Omri, like the other kings before him, did and achieved some things that in some cases the people did applaud and marveled at. But God still judged their rebellious hearts and disobedience. And that leads to the fourth principle I get from it. Achievement does not always constitute God's favor. Achievement does not always constitute God's favor, or you might say approval. Just as when they brought the sick guy to Jesus and they asked, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Jesus said, neither. This was happened so that it might bring me glory. Achievement does not necessarily reflect God's approval. Great leaders always keep the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 12, 14 in mind. Where it says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing whether good it is good or evil God holds leaders and all of the rest of us for that matter accountable and he sees it all both the things we do out in the wide open and the things that we think we have cleverly hidden away from every one else when Omri passed away his son Ahab took the throne and at the end of chapter 16 going into the beginning of 17 we read Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him have you noticed that after generation after generation after generation it continues to devolve this generation was bad, but this generation was worse. And this next generation was even more worse. And the next one was worse, 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 worse. By the time you get to Ahab, we've hit rock bottom. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Then jumping forward a verse or two, we get to the beginning of chapter 17, where it, almost even in language it signals something is about to happen. And it says, now Elijah the Tishbite. I like what Dr. Kaiser said about that. It said it sounds like a cracker. <laughs> Tishbite. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In the midst of all this depravity that had reached rock bottom in Israel with the, Israel's leadership and nation. A prophet of the one true God named Elijah steps onto the scene to confront this wicked king and queen. And that leads us to our fifth and final principle we're going to find in the weeks ahead to be so true. Tenacity for God is imperative. Tenacity for God is imperative. 
in the face of blatant idolatry and wickedness, Elijah takes a bold stand that required great courage and resolve. We may not even know it, but his very name was a powerful testament in and of itself. El meaning God, E, L, E, my, Yah, the Lord. He comes before the king in all his wickedness and appears before him proclaiming with his very name, my God is Yah, my God is the Lord. Even his name would have either been ridiculed or found offensive. Elijah then states that he serves the Lord and announces a drought for the next few years. I wonder if the king ridiculed him. I wonder if it made the king angry. I wonder if it did both. But Elijah dared to take such a stand anyway. And I close with this. Inevitably, there will be times when leaders and all of the rest of us will be called to stand and act in ways that require godly guts and dogged determination. For God, the same godly guts and dogged determination that Jesus demonstrated us. Father, I come humbly before you, recognizing that I have sinned, recognizing that I have failed to do the good that I should do at times, and recognizing that I have done things that I shouldn't. I confess that often my heart has been self-centered. I admit that I can't do anything about it myself. I'm not qualified to receive those wages and remedy them. But I accept the fact that Jesus received those wages for me and acknowledge Him as my Savior. I desire to make Him my Lord and leader. And ask your Holy Spirit to come in my life as you draw me near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.